Tonight, let's go back to Luke again, our fourth uh, venture into this uh, beautiful declaration of Mary's, where we're going to work our way down this evening to verse number 49. So I'm just going to read it like I have uh, the other three times, from 46, Luke 1, 46 through 55. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the humble state of his bondslave. Behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted who were those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Like I said, verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What a terrific verse this is. Heavenly Father, thank you again for just the privilege of gathering together here tonight. And as we uh, look at this passage again, we thank you, Lord, for it. It is so rich in thought. Uh, We just come before you and say, teach us, Lord. Show us again who you are and how great you are, that we might join in with Mary in that chorus, uh, that we magnify the Lord. So thank you for our time that we can spend here tonight. We pray your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, I was told as I researched this uh, entire Magnificat, that it's broken down into four stanzas, according to one of the scholars. I like the way he did it. It's kind of like a good hymn, right? There's four verses to it. We we sing that. We don't mind really hymns with four verses, Uh Hymns with 12 verses are a little too much. You might have started to get a little tired with uh, the first Noel this morning with six verses. As we got on, we got a little weaker, I think, maybe a little tired as we went. Um, You might find it interesting that uh, when Charles Wesley wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there was originally ten stanzas to it. And they've kind of whittled it down a little bit. But uh, I think that would be an awful lot of singing. Uh, just saying, it'd be like doing the 12 days of Christmas or something like that. We, we go through those and say, wow, those are long. Well, the observation that I've seen and, and I bring to you here tonight, those four simple stanzas uh, speak to these four topics. Uh, the first one in verse 46 through 48, it's a praise to God for what he has done for Mary. And we've seen that as we've gone through those verses already. Verse 49, where we start tonight and up to verse 50, we speak of the attributes of God. Three in particular, his power, his holiness, and his mercy. And then in verse 51 to 53, we look at his sovereign actions. God's sovereign actions are in those verses. And then the last two, 54 and 55, are his, his mercy, God's mercy to Israel. So these are the four topics that she hits on, and she started with that very personal refrain there, uh, what he has done for me. 
what he has done for me, and we'll see more of that as we go, uh, even into this section here tonight. But now we move into the attribute section. And what's great is the, the verse that we have in verse 49 has two-thirds of the attributes mentioned. Right there in the very first verse we will look at in that topic. Um, the power of God and the holiness of God. Now, theologically, I always think that studying the attributes of God is, is thrilling. It's a joy to research the words and the expressions and even into the Hebrew meaning and into the Greek meaning of, of names given for God that suggest His power, like El Shaddai and such like that. Powerful little words that, that speak of His attributes. And I realize, and I know you do too, that the capacity of a single man's mind to comprehend the fullness of uh, the attributes of God. It's just staggering to even come close to that. And I imagine if we put all of our capacities together tonight and tried it, we still will come up far short trying to understand the fullness of who God is and, and what He does. I have on my uh, computer a program I just put on recently. Had it before on another computer and I thought maybe it's time I put it on this one too. It, it's, a, it's an optimizing program. What it does is it goes through the the uh, files and such to clean out unnecessary files, to identify duplicated files and things like that. And so I pushed the test button just the first time the other day. There were over six gigabytes of duplicated files on my computer. I said, wow, that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? I remember when I had a one megabyte computer. And now six gigabytes of, uh, it just sounds enormous. But it, it told me that uh, it would be best if I went and deleted the duplicates. But I found out that most of those were family, family pictures. And so I said, I don't mind them being duplicated. I have a lot of family pictures on there, and they just wanted me to start pitching some. I don't mind having so many. So I live with six gigabytes of family pictures, I guess. Optimizing, though, was meant to make things run quicker. That was the idea of this little program. And uh, I think maybe it'd be nice to have one of those devices attached to my head. Wouldn't that be great? It could work through there and make things work quicker. Um, but if, if we had a theme that really ought to be duplicated, or triplicated for that matter, I think even running far beyond whatever six gigabytes of our brain cells might be, I think the theme of God's attributes is worth it. And that's what we get a, a look at here tonight, and I like that very much. Because what you will notice about Mary in her expression here in verse number 49 is that she makes these attributes of God very personal to her. Very personal to her. Uh, it's an amazing thing just to think that God would direct His power toward us. That God would give His mercy to us. I mean, he's merciful, and he's powerful. But when he aims it in our direction, and when he does his great things on our behalf, uh, it's such a touching thing, isn't it? I know it was meaningful to Mary. Here's how verse 49 reads, if I take the personal aspect out. For the Mighty One has done great things, and holy is his name. And that's true. He has done great things. And indeed, his name is holy. Uh, we could find verse after verse after verse after verse like that. But in the middle of all that, she said, 
For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. She makes it very personal. And that's what we're going to see here tonight. Because when we speak of the mighty one, what is it that we're saying with such a phrase? Dunatos is the Greek word that fits in there. There's a family of words. Dunamai is the verb, and dunamis is the noun, and dunatos, it works as the adjective here. It's a perfect adjective. Uh, It's an easy thing to think, because it sounds like dynamite, that that's what he's talking about. Uh, And I guess that is the English equivalent of the word, and yet dynamite generally tears things apart when it makes loud noises, right? Uh, When we talk about this word, actually in the Greek, we're talking about ability. It does mean a power, and power to do things. Uh, But in it, it's the concept of ability. So this attribute is saying the Mighty One is the God who is able. The One who is able. Now, when we put this into this, I, I, I usually think that that is probably a good summation of all of theology. If you break it down into a simple phrase... My favorite is to say, I know the God who is able. That sums him up very nicely. He is the one who commands light to shine. And it does. And if you follow the, the, rule, the days of creation, that was before there was a sun or a moon. It said, let there be light, and there was. That's power. He commanded the waters to appear on the earth and then separated them from the land which he had also created. That's powerful. I've seen the Gulf of Mexico down where my dad lives. I could go out there and spend time on the beach and enjoy that mostly. Usually it's too hot and there's flies and, and other things. Not always enjoyable, but at least the kids like to pick up shells. Gulf of Mexico is huge when you're standing right beside it. Uh, I've seen the Niagara Falls and very impressed with the Niagara Falls. Uh, just this past year, I was able to, in, when I went to Brazil, we went over the edge of the Atlantic Ocean there and such. And From the air, that's rather impressive as you're looking down and see all that water. And some of you have gone over the seas and you've traveled and you've seen all that water. And God created that. And that's impressive to me. You know, I could try to command a faucet to stop dripping, and it won't. I I could even stare at a light switch and and yell at it for hours, and it never once turn on or off. But God said, let there be light, and boom, there was. Isn't that impressive? They talk about the God who is able. We go to creation because that's what we can visualize. We can see these things. And we say, wow, he is able because the heavens declare the glory of God. And we see these things. Then we pick up his word and we start walking through the pages. And we see him taking that same Red Sea that he had created and dividing it for the Israelites to walk through. Did that with the Jericho River on several occasions. That could be a good trivia question for you tonight, but I'm not going to do it. How many different times did he part the Jericho River? Several. Uh, he confused armies with the sound of marching in the trees. He tore down the walls of Jericho from the outside or from the inside out. He held the sun in place for 24 hours so Joshua could finish a battle. 
fed over 2 million people daily, twice on Friday, for 40 years. That's an amazing display of his power. I don't know how you would describe the God who is able, but I think scripture does it very well. Almost every single page we see that attribute coming forward here. And what is amazing to Mary is the fact that God who is able has directed his power toward her. That's what he says. That's what she says here. Um, I, I would guess, as this phrase is, the mighty one has done great things for me. She probably would have been satisfied with just calling herself his bondservant, as she does, a, a handmaid, you might have in your translation. I think she probably would have been satisfied with just going through life, going down to the Jerusalem temple to worship on occasion, which we find her doing that. Probably attending the synagogue up around Nazareth, and I'm sure she probably spent some time there too. Just living that wholesome kind of life as a mother, as a wife, I think that's what she would have had in her plans, as most people would have back then. But we also know what God had designed for her, don't we? But here in Luke, go back to verse 26, a very familiar passage, and I'll bring it up almost every sermon. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, What kind of salutation is this? The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And this is what will happen to her. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And as, as these words are all being spoken to her, there's one thing sticking right there in her mind. The first phrase. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Because immediately, what does she say? How can this be, since I am a virgin? You know, that's a very appropriate question right there. A very appropriate one. I don't think that's a sign of doubt when she brings up this question. I think her wheels started to turn as she heard those words. And she would or could have understood if the way was natural, the way it happens in most uh, families. She wasn't married, though. Now, I would suspect that even in her days, there were plenty who didn't think marriage was any issue uh, when it came to having relations. But she was upright. As we saw this morning, she was a, a blameless, righteous kind of lady. And as a result, she didn't even think once. It never dawned on her that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. Think of that thought. That's so incredible to try to comprehend. To a virgin. The angel didn't rebuke the question. 
Matter of fact, I think he probably smiled, and here's my just my own perspective of it. If I was doing a movie, it would be a smile right here, because all of a sudden he got, hey, I get to talk about what God is able to do. Because that's an attribute. They like to talk about his power. And this is what he says to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, he gives added evidence in verse 36. Even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her own age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Underscore the word barren right there. She has lived the years of childbearing already. Done. She's advanced in years. No plans, no hopes, no crib waiting, no baby shoes or something like that in the desk. She wasn't waiting for a child, was she? It was far past that day. And when the Lord is, or this angel is speaking to Mary, he says, yeah, let's bring up Elizabeth for a minute. You want evidence of what God can do? Matter of fact, what is his very next phrase? Nothing is impossible for God. If Elizabeth being barren and elderly can have a child, God could do this too. And that's his answer to it. Now, if that was all there was to it, the angels would say, God is able, and Mary says, okay. That's my paraphrase, short and form of the next verse. Mary says, Behold the bondservant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Isn't that a great response? You know, maybe we need to learn that kind of a response to God's word. When he says, do this, you say, okay. But he says, I'm going to do this. You say, okay. What a great response. May it be done. That was her answer. She was, she was convinced with it. Now, we don't really know all that Mary endured because of this. We know parts of it. We know how Joseph really wrestled with the news, didn't he? He had come to a conclusion of what he was going to do. Uh, we don't know what that conversation was like when they finally saw each other face to face. By then, of course, I believe the angel would talk to him, and he came to see her, and that that was probably quite an interesting moment. We don't have the record of their dialogue. I think it would have been interesting, huh? But God dealt with that, too. We don't know what Mary's family thought, for she would have been living with her parents up until the time that she was taken to be his wife. We don't know what they would have thought of these things. We don't have that record. It's interesting, though. There is one reference in the book of John that kind of strikes us a little bit funny, and it almost suggests, and maybe it does, that the Pharisees held that as an issue. I'll tell you what they said. They were having a conversation in John chapter 8 about uh, the Father. Who belongs to the Father? And, and it, it was getting kind of contentious there because... Jesus had mentioned their father was the devil, which usually, you know, doesn't make a smooth road for anybody to, to answer that. And in John eight forty one says, You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We were not born of fornication. 
That came out of the blue. Makes you wonder, hmm, I don't know. But when I read that, I think, I wonder what they were thinking when they said that. For how often did they say something like this? Oh, we know where who Mary is. We know who Joseph is. We know who his brothers are. And they would bring up his family. And then that phrase? Interesting phrase. I don't know if that's what that means or not. But Simeon told her this, too. If that wasn't one thing that she carried in her mind and, and such, Simeon also told her in Luke chapter 2, when he uh, saw her there, uh, they were doing the ceremony for the uh, Christ being born. They brought him to the temple there and, and the sacrifice and all that goes with it. And while they were there, Simeon came up and blessed them. It says in verse 34, chapter 2, Luke 2, 34. And said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's a mysterious little statement, really. And I'm thinking, how could Mary have understood such a thing? Perhaps what it's speaking of is a pain that a mother would have standing at the foot of a cross watching her son die. I, I don't even understand the words on that. How would she have understood what Simeon said that day? Well, she was a ponderer, wasn't she? She'd take words and she'd, she'd put them in and she'd just think of... She kept things in her heart, Scripture says. She endured things that are at a loss to understand. I'm not sure that anyone would have really liked to have traded places with her. But how much of this did she really comprehend? The angels would report to her and say she's having this child where uh, she gets reports that he is to be great. Another report from Joseph, he's to be the Savior. The word from Simeon, he's going to be pierced through and so will your soul. I never see her looking for the answer though. She hears these words and she ponders them. But you don't have her ask too many times, why? Or what do you mean by that? Or any other phrase to follow like that. For the most part, her expression probably was very much like what you see here, and the way she originally answered the angel. The Mighty One has done great things for me. He has done great things for me. Now, I don't know why they chose the word for there in our English translations. I imagine it could have been the Mighty One has great done great things to me. But that's Probably not what she would have wanted to say. The other thing, perhaps, uh, the Mighty One has done great things by me, but she didn't say that either, did she? The way we have it translated, it's for me. He has done great things for me. Now, put a list down, and what we have seen so far, she's going to have a baby as a virgin. She's going to carry the, whatever the stigma is that goes with that, because the world won't understand She's going to uh, witness his crucifixion. She's going to see these things. And uh, I can only imagine that uh, sometimes it's hard to say the Lord has done great things for me. <laughs> when you look at them that way. According to the uh, first couple of verses of this song that we're looking at here, Mary has acknowledged that he is worthy to be magnified. 
He deserves her heart's praise. He's already been called her Savior. He has blessed her. He has regarded or looked upon her. He was with her. He has favored her. Now, wouldn't it be nice as you read these things, if we would condense all that we have received from God to that simple description, He has done great things for me. We look at circumstances. Mary had plenty of them to look at. But she rather looked at the character of God as her answer. He saves us. He blesses us. He's looked upon us and favored us with His grace. We praise Him. We magnify Him. Because, Mary says, because He is mighty. He is mighty. And He has done great things for us. And then she keeps going with her phrase and adds, And holy is His name. A name is one's reputation. It reflects what man's opinions are. Even when they meet the person and they see their deeds and they hear their name, they attach an opinion to that name, don't they? Sometimes it's an honorable thing, and sometimes it's a disgraceful opinion. We mention names even still to this day, and we're quick to come to a conclusion about someone's character because we hear a name. Hitler. Immediately you thought something, didn't you, when you hear that name? You could say the word Hitler. Judas. People don't name those kids that anymore, do they? Judas. Now, just to be fair, how about Jezebel? <laughs> we don't want to leave the women out of this story. Uh, we, could, we could take a name and we could say, oh, that says something to me. There's an opinion we have of names like that. You think God is conscious of his name? From all I see in scripture, he is very conscious of that name. Now, I don't think that he fears any danger that he's going to do something to smear that name or degrade that name. I don't think that's the case at all. By that name, he commands and things are done. By that name, he promises and those promises are kept. Of all the attributes that you could attach to his name, I like holiness stuck next to it. Holy is his name. The holy marks, the holiness marks him apart from, from everything, if you will. He is God and God alone. In that he's holy. He's set apart. He, he's set apart because there is none like him. Scripture says. We also know in a fuller definition, he is apart from sin. He is set apart from sin. There's, there's not a, a shadow in him, as James would say. There's not a shifting uh, in his character at all. He is light. No darkness is found in him. He is fully holy. That's consistently and eternally holy. Now this starts to blow a few circuits on the brain as we think through this part. There are no degrees of holiness with God. He is holy. He is, he is holy 
all the time, not holy one moment and not the next. Holiness is never diminished by love. It's never activated by anger. Holiness is just as full when he hates as when he loves. Holiness will bring him to condemn one and to save another. Through holiness, he sends one to hell and he brings one to heaven. Powerful little thing, isn't it? The holiness of God. He operates at the optimum of holiness all the time. All the time. If you put a meter on it, it stays at the top all the time. It never fluctuates. His actions to Mary are wrapped in that holiness. Is that quite a picture? What he has done for her has been by his holiness and through his name. And it can't be otherwise. His character is attached to his actions. I often quote to you, because it's one of my favorite passages, Psalm 23, and I'll bring up parts and pieces, and then I wrote all that for the uh, church newsletter on Psalm 23. Just love that study. But my, one of my favorite sections is there in there in verse number 3, when it says, He leads us in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. That is such a priceless phrase. And we take a minute just to think that through. There's a couple of things that are, are mentioned just in that phrase alone. The first thing is, that there's only one path by which the Lord will ever lead you. There's only one designation for the path. It's the path of righteousness. That's the only path He ever goes down. The path of righteousness. Because they are the right path. Every time. He doesn't lead down the wrong path. If we're on the wrong path, we stop following Him. He only goes down the right path. I like that. You know, that helps me a lot in my my own thinking of events in life. When people come in and they're struggling with something and they talk to me and they don't understand, why is this happening to me and such like that? You know, we're always looking for what's that answer? What, what, how, do you, how do you, you know, counteract? Some, this, this is happening, this is happening, this is, you know, those kind of things. And I said, do you know God only leads you on the right path? And if you're on His path, and these are happening, God's in charge of that. Because it's the right path. That right path went through the shadow of darkness. That same path was going through there with the Lord by your side, with His rod and His staff. Was it the right path? Yes. Were there dangers? Oh, yes. <laughs> there were lots of dangers in the dark. <laughs> but it was the right path. And he was leading through that. So I, I take that first as, as a, uh, a, a confirmation in my own heart. That where the Lord leads, it's right to be there. The song we have in our hymn book, Like a River Glorious. Love that song. Love that song. One of our... Theology teachers at Moody, he had three songs that we would sing. 
uh, before class we always sang a song, and there were three, I think, in his whole repertoire, and this was one of them. Uh, like a river glory. He led it like he was a fish. This was his direction as we, as we sang this song. It was really, I, I still picture it to this day when I see this song. But the phrase, the last verse is, Every joy or trial cometh from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. And we can trust Him fully. All for us to do. Those who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. I love that phrase. That's one thing we can mark with this this simple idea that he only leads down the paths of righteousness. But the rest of that phrase, the rest of that phrase, based on the fact that he's mighty and he's holy, and what he does, he does what's right, it adds that he does it for his name's sake. Because he backs all of that with his reputation. It's his honor. He's not afraid to assign his name to it. To attach it to what it is. Even if Mary cannot understand, and I don't think she did a lot in some of these things, all that is happening, all that will happen, she's very quick to submit herself to the mighty God who is holy and signs his name to it. I like that trust, don't you? I like that trust. I was talking to a friend just uh, recently, uh, pondering some of these things, and, and I, I just suddenly got this idea. I said, you know, Mary did not go out and find a support group for pregnant virgins. That would have been interesting, huh? She just simply put all her trust in God. That's what she did. Because she trusted his character, his attributes. So, where are we? Oh, it's that personal time again, isn't it? Happens a lot. Pastors love this part. They turn it around and say, now, (laughs) where are we in these kind of things? In the middle of things that are confusing? Often. In the middle of things that uh, seem out of control? What can I do about it? Those kind of questions. Things that make us wonder, what's God doing here? You ever ask that question? Here's my suggestion, and I I think Mary models it very well for us here tonight. Take our eyes off the situation and put them on the Lord. Put them on the Lord. We do believe He is a mighty one, don't we? We're convinced of that, I'm sure. Is our theology all wrapped up in the phrase, He is able? I would hope so. I'm not looking at that like He hands us a blank check and do whatever you want, kind of able. But He is able. He gives us what we need for a day. His grace is sufficient. Didn't He tell that to Paul once? That was just to say, okay, stop. (laughs) don't ask again I've got this we believe he's holy don't we we're convinced of that what he does he does right and what he does right he does 
this all the time? That who you are and what you are are by his shaping and it's right? Wow, it gets real personal all of a sudden, doesn't it? Do you count on the fact that he has attached his name to his actions towards you? Sometime do this study. Go through there and see how many times it mentions God's name next to an action that he has done for his children. It will blow you away to see how often he says, for my name's sake, for my name's sake. I think with all this, it's real simple. I mean, we've got choices we make all the time. We can either quickly magnify our problems or magnify our Lord. That makes it sound so simple, doesn't it? I know what it's like to be in the middle of it, though, and say, I don't know where I am in all this. But even Mary was quick to go to that place. She magnified the Lord. That was her choice. Those were her words. He has done great things for me. And I imagine we could stop and start listing them, can't we? And what he's done for you and me, he has done great things. And holy is his name. What a precious little passage. As we work through this, there are jewels all over the place, aren't they? It's a glorious picture of our God. And I like that very much. So we're going to let you uh, meditate on that this week. When we get together again next week, we're going on to the next phrase. His mercy is toward generation after generation. Oh, I love that one too. Heavenly Father, you are so good and so kind that you would even direct your attention to us at all is an amazing thing. But that you would wrap it in holiness and sign your name to it and do this great thing in all of our lives. We know primarily just saving our souls. We're eternally grateful for that. But that you're active this way all the time. You're always mighty. You're always holy. And you're always with us. We're overwhelmed by it. We thank you for these words. So wonderfully spoken by Mary and so meaningful yet to us today, we can understand what she said. And we can magnify you too with her. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for giving us this time just to focus on who you are. May our attention be directed that way. And may it become more of our habit that when we are caught up in the midst of something, our first thought is to magnify our Lord for he has done great things for us. May that be our thought. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, your patience with us, your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.